morning, everyone. You guys missed a great service last night if you weren't here. It was just off the charts. If you were here, if you weren't, I don't know. Um, so make sure you plan to be here the next time. Saturday night service, it was just fantastic. We had all ages here. It was just a wonderful time of worship. And we've already had a great time this morning. So <clears throat> we're in this series called God-Sized Conversations. And if you have a Bible or you want to pull out your device or just follow along on the screen, we're going to be in a lot of different passages today, but one of the passages, one of the main ones is John chapter 20. John chapter 20. So this, this series is called God-Sized Conversations, and we asked for people to submit questions through a survey. The community, church, all through the month of December, and even now we're still getting questions. And the question that I want to tackle today, I'm just going to read it to you. This person wrote this. Our faith is just that, complete faith. None of us know beyond doubt what is in the Bible is what actually happened. We do not know for certain if it's true. Could it all be parables and not meant to be understood literally? Could it be a storybook? Let's face it, none of us were around when these events happened. I personally have faith, and I'm not trying to be cynical. I simply want to know if my thoughts are shared by anyone else. What is the proof? How can you know it's true? And, you know, for some of you sitting here, you are already maybe tuning out a little bit because you don't think this is that important of a question because you just have faith. You have faith and you believe. Yet, in 1 Peter 3.15, there's a great passage in 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says to honor, to revere, to love the Lord Jesus Christ, but to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you but do it with gentleness and respect. And so Peter's saying that we all need to be ready to give that reason for the hope that is within us. That even though we may have faith, there's other people around us who are questioning, who are searching, who are exploring. And we need to be ready, Peter says, to give a defense that hopefully people are asking us about the hope that's in us. Hopefully that's their question. And when we answer them, we are to answer with gentleness and respect. So that would mean that posting a video on Facebook that says, you know, religious professor scolds the atheist. That's out, because that's not respectful. That means that jamming it down someone's throat is out, because that's not gentle. Give a reason for the hope that is within you. So how can we know, and what is the defense that we should be prepared to give? There's lots of great answers to this question. There's lots of different directions you can go to know, to tell people how you can know that it's true. But I want to give you the one that's proved the most helpful to me. I'm going to speak to you from here on out as if you're a person who's asking this question, maybe someone who's not yet saved, or maybe you're a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian a long time, and you're doubting a little bit. Or maybe you're a young person, and you're trying to make your faith your own. I'm going to try to speak directly to you from here on out. We can know something if it's been revealed to us, right? 
if something's been revealed to us, we can know it. And God reveals himself to us. He reveals the Christian story to us in two ways. General revelation and special revelation. General revelation and special revelation. General revelation first. Let's define it. General revelation, it's truth that is available to all of us through nature. It's truth that is available to us when we just go outside and look up at the night sky and we see the vastness of the stars. It's the truth that's revealed to us when we see pregnancy or we see the way a plant grows and we see the complexity of it. When we study the sciences or we study math or we see the way a human being creates music and art. That God is speaking to us, he is revealing something to us when we see that. With general revelation, nature itself is speaking to us. It's speaking to us the voice of God. Psalm 19, 1 through 2 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. General revelation. The psalmist is saying literally that the sky, the stars, nature speaks to us, pours forth speech, reveals to us that there must be a creator God, that this didn't just happen, that something caused this. 17th century astronomer Johannes Kepler, troubled by his friend who denied the existence of God, and maintained that the universe came into existence by itself. He constructed a model in his home of a solar system, of our solar system. And upon seeing it, his friend exclaimed, How beautiful this is! Who made it? Kepler replied, No one. It made itself. Nonsense, said his friend. Tell me who made it. Kepler then said, friend, you say that this little toy cannot make itself, but it's a weak imitation of this great universe, which I understand you believe did make itself. No one in their right mind would have believed that this model that Kepler made, this small model that fit in his living room, just came into existence by itself. In the same way, when we look around us, knowledge is revealed of God. In Psalm 14.1 and 53.1, the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no God. Rene Descartes was a French mathematician. He was a scientist. He was a philosopher in the 1600s. And what he did was he's, he's searching for truth. He's one of the most brilliant men to ever walk the earth. And he's searching for truth to these deep, deep questions. So he studies. He studies books. He studies Aristotle and Plato. He studies the religions of the world. He's seeking truth through math, through science, through religion, through whatever. And he came to a point of frustration where he determined that he was going to reset himself. To reset his brain, his heart, his soul. And act as if he closes his eyes as a human being and opens them up. And when he opens them up, that's his first moment of consciousness. He's trying to do a, a hard reset where he forgets everything he's learned as much as he can. What would that be like if you were a human being, he thought, and you were to do that, 
and really do that, and then you were to open your eyes and suddenly be conscious. And he uttered these famous words when he did that. I think, therefore, I am. Opens his eyes, conscious. And then what he said was, it only took a split second to go from that to I exist, I'm conscious, to God. To look around. To say, because I'm conscious, there must be a God. Now this is one of the most brilliant men to ever walk planet Earth. And he landed there. He said that this truth comes to us very, very quickly when we just eliminate all of man's opinions, even the good ones. I think, therefore I am. And then it easily gets to the point that there has to be a God, a designer, a creator that brought this into being. Romans 1, 19 through 20 says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them Because God has shown it to them. There's no atheists. All of us know that there's a God. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. That's what general revelation is. It renders man without excuse. Because we look around... And we see all around us. We see all around us. And I'm just scraping the surface. I could talk about this for the next six hours. General revelation leads to believing in a God, in a creator God, in a, in a vague idea of God. But there's something that is really, really big that is missing. General revelation is not enough to save us. General revelation, even though every man experiences this, even if they say they don't believe in God, they're suppressing the truth, Paul says, because of sin. They're suppressing it in their hearts because it just flows out of us. Like Rene Descartes said, when we look around us, we can't help but just be in awe and wonder. But it's not enough. It's not enough for us. And that's where special revelation comes in. General revelation is what's been revealed to us naturally. Special revelation, it's what has been revealed to us supernaturally. Special revelation is the scriptures, the word of God, the Bible that was inspired by the Holy Spirit of Christ. The Bible is supernatural. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture, all of it, is breathed out, is inspired supernaturally, that there's a direct superintending of the scriptures when they're written by man. They're written in in the style of the day. They're written in the pen, in the human pen of the man. But yet, they're being controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we see the majesty of that when we look at the whole of scripture, don't we? We look at this and we see the consistency of Scripture and we see that it's supernatural. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is how God has revealed to us supernaturally his plan of salvation. We need special revelation. We need scripture to be saved. It's not enough to just see that there's a vague idea of God, that there's a creator God. 
Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I have a question for you as we just pause for a moment. Are you in the word of God? Are you immersing yourself in the word of God? Many times when people come to me and they're struggling in their faith, I'll ask them, are you in the word of God? Are you accessing this special revelation, this supernatural book that we have? Augustine was one of the great church fathers. He's one of the top five. And as a young man, he dabbled in everything. He dabbled in science and philosophy. He dabbled in different kinds of religion. He wrote a book later on in life called Confessions where he basically just spewed out all the horrible things that he did as a young man. His mother Monica prayed for him over and over and over again that he would come to Jesus, which he did. And she said these great words. She said that a, a mother who prays this much for her son has to be answered by the Lord. And it was. So Augustine's searching and he's in his mid-twenties as a young man, and he hears a voice. He claimed to hear a voice. He hears a child's voice say, take up and read. Take up and read. And there's a Bible there. <laughs> and he takes it up, and he reads it. He turns to Romans, and he reads it, and he's converted on the spot. He reads, he's convicted, and the rest is history. He never looked back. The Word of God has that kind of power. And so many times, we don't have that power in our lives. No wonder we doubt. No wonder we struggle. No wonder we're not effective. Meditate on it. William Tyndale, who was famous for his translation of the Bible into English, was right in saying, a servant boy with the Bible would know more about God than the most learned pastor who ignored the Bible. The ultimate form of special revelation that we find in the scriptures is Jesus Christ. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word, Jesus, was with God, and the word was God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. With special revelation, every page in the Bible points to Jesus. So many times we try to prove God to people or to ourselves by sticking in the realm of general revelation, to a vague idea of God, to an all of that God, and basically saying that that's enough. Why can't people see? Why can't people come to faith in Jesus? I mean, look all around them. They can, they can see plainly there's a God. There's more than that, there's special revelation where everything points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Our faith is all about him. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom created all things. Martin Luther said the fundamental content of the Bible is Jesus Christ. He said it's the center and the circumference. To miss Jesus is to miss the message of the Bible. So, general revelation 
looking around, seeing that there's a God, the natural, that's easy. Like Paul said, we all see it. We suppress the truth. Like the psalmist said, only the fool says there's not a God. We can see it all around us. That's easy. Every man has it. It renders man without excuse. But special revelation through the scriptures and being pointed to Jesus, that's hard. Not every person sees that. Not every person knows that. Not every person embraces that because now we've made the faith really personal. Now it's going from a vague idea of a creator God, which is true, to a very, very personal man, a God-man who walks the earth. How can we know through special revelation, how can we know that this Jesus stuff is true? How can we know? There's many ways, but one of the ways that helps me and what I would share with you if you're struggling in your faith, I've shared it with young people many times, I've shared it with others many times, is this. I am drawn deeply back to the apostles of Jesus. I think that they are an incredible proof of the Jesus story. These were the guys who were the closest followers of Jesus. And many times we fail to understand the context of what they were living in. You see, these apostles, these, they were disciples then, they became apostles. They were longing for a Messiah. Now a Messiah was a deliverer. It was literally a military deliverer they were looking for. They were looking for someone to come and restore the kingdom of David on earth. They were looking for someone to come and free them from Rome. They were literally looking for a man, a person, a leader, a military leader. They weren't looking for a God-man. They were looking for a military person to come and to be their Messiah. So when Rome killed Jesus on the cross... What did the disciples do? They scattered. A dead Messiah was no Messiah at all. They went and they hid. They hid for their lives, for safety. They were going back to being fishermen. They thought that Jesus had said that he was the Messiah. They thought he was the Messiah. And their hopes were crushed. Peter, think about Peter. Peter denied Jesus. And many times we'll say, you know, Peter was a coward. He denied Jesus when Jesus needed him the most. He denied him. And what we fail to see again is the context. Remember when Jesus was arrested in the garden, in the middle of the night, Peter's by his side. And what does Peter do? He takes out his sword and he chops off the ear of one of the guards. Hardly a coward. Here we have Peter who's risking his life. Why? Because he thought it was time to fight Rome to fight alongside his military Messiah. And what does Jesus do? He takes the ear and he heals the guy. Basically says, Peter, put away your sword. And so they scatter at that point because Peter was seeing this and saying, I guess he's not who he said he was as far as the Messiah goes. Why would he want to die with a fake Messiah who won't even let him use his sword? A dead Messiah was no Messiah at all. So we have to get into our heads we have to get into our heads just how remarkable the faith of these disciples was. So Jesus dies, and they scatter. They hide from the authorities. When the resurrection accounts happen at first, what happens? They don't believe the women who saw Jesus. They don't, they don't believe it. They're, they need to be convinced. They doubt. They hide. 
So the disciples who became apostles, these guys who were in hiding, these guys who all came from different backgrounds, who all had some of these weird agendas, they see the risen Christ. So in, in John 20, I want to read to you from verse 24. This is eight days after the first appearance of the resurrection. And here's Thomas, this guy who gets a bad rap, doubting Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, literally that means barred, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him these amazing words, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God, there it is. He's convinced, he sees him, my Lord and my God. These men, these guys who had scattered, who had hid, who had all of these weird, deeply seated agendas, their lives were changed in an instant. Why would these men from these diverse backgrounds all go and dedicate the rest of their lives to spreading the message of Jesus? Why would they die for their faith? If it wasn't true, you say, well, radical people die for their faith all the time. I mean, just look at the terrorists who fly planes in the buildings. I mean, they died and their faith isn't true. So it doesn't really mean that faith is true or the story is true because someone dies for it. People die for a story all the time. But listen, here's the huge difference. And here's how you can become helpful to those who are asking this question. And maybe in your own heart, there's a very key difference between that terrorists and what happens here with the disciples. If the apostles died for an untrue religion, they would have not only been dying for an untrue religion, but they would have known that they were dying for an untrue religion. They would have known that they were dying for a lie. And they'd already been hiding. They'd already given up. They would know that they were dying for this lie. They would have known that they were giving their lives for this lie. And not just one of them went out and served Jesus, but all of them did. That is remarkable. That should build our faith. That builds the case for Christ that it's true. Think about the way these guys died. Peter, he was crucified upside down. Why? Because he didn't feel like he was worthy to be crucified in the same way Jesus was. So he's crucified upside down. Andrew was also crucified. He was a missionary to modern-day Russia, and he was arrested, crucified. It took him three days to die, and while he's on the cross dying for three days, usually what happens to a man is they would you know, kind of lose their sense, lose their mind, but he had his mind and he preached from the cross for three days at everyone who would pass by, pleading with them to come to Jesus. Think about that. 
Thomas, the doubter, he was finally convinced. So much so that he was tortured with red hot plates, he was put into a furnace, and he was speared to death. Bartholomew was severely tortured, beaten with rods, he was flayed, whipped, crucified, and then axed to death. He would have known he was dying for a lie. Simon and Thaddeus were beaten to death and crucified. Matthew was beheaded. It goes on and on. Not just the apostles. You know, Paul was an apostle as well, and he was beheaded by Nero. Never mind the fact that Paul, you know, left a lucrative, respected field. He was persecuting Christians. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and yet he leaves all of that. He himself is a proof for Christ. So we have the disciples. But there's something we can't miss about the disciples, these apostles, and even their death. Even in their death, we can't miss something else. Because don't just consider their horrible deaths, where they would have been dying for something they knew was a lie, if it was a lie. But these guys couldn't really put a thought together while Jesus was with them. They were knuckleheads. They were guys who were always putting their foot in their mouth, like Peter. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. They didn't get it at all. But yet, after going from fear of being killed, after Jesus is crucified, after all of that, after hiding, they see Jesus risen, and they go from that to openly proclaiming Jesus in the streets, boldly, with articulation, with clarity, Listen to what Peter says in Acts 2. He says this. This is after he receives the Holy Spirit of Christ. Men of Israel, Peter says, he's standing publicly in the streets. He'd be arrested. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, that, everyone knew that. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it's amazing the way he died, but it's amazing the way these guys lived. How bold they were. Going from hiding and wandering and wanting to be back to fishermen and confused and all these weird political agendas. They all had these different agendas to being one and spreading the message of Jesus. Why? Because they saw him risen from the dead. That's what Peter was able to do. And so... Why was he able to do this? Well, partly because, like I said, he saw Jesus alive. But the real reason that Peter was able to do this was because he had Jesus inside of him. He had the Holy Spirit of Christ, as Paul calls it in Romans 8, inside of him. He had the, the Holy Spirit of the Son, as Paul calls it in Galatians 4, inside of him. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes to them and fills them. That's why he was able the best proof for Christianity is a changed life, is your changed life, is being able to give a reason for the hope, to have that hope within you, as he said in 1 Peter 3.15, with gentleness and respect. That's one of the best proofs 
of Christianity. When Jesus flows out of you. When Jesus flows out of you. How do you get Jesus to flow out of you? By being filled with his Holy Spirit. How do you get his Holy Spirit? Where is the place where you can find the Holy Spirit in the most intense manner? In the scriptures, through special revelation, you don't get this power through your own power. You don't deepen your faith through your own power. Scripture says, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Trying to believe in your own strength is confusing and it's exhausting. Take up and read, just as Augustine heard. That's where the Holy Spirit of Christ dwells richly, right here. And then when you are filled with the scriptures that point to Jesus, the ministry of Jesus flows out of you. It just does. Not in a perfect way, but in a very imperfect, humble way. The greatest proof of Christianity are the changed lives around us. And the way that we know our lives have truly been fully changed is not whether we just say we believe in it. It's not that. It's not whether we go to church. It's not whether we're trying to be a godly man or a godly woman. The way we know our mission, that our lives have been truly changed, listen, is when our mission changes. When Jesus' mission becomes our mission. That's the greatest proof. And what is this mission? To live, to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. That's the only reason we're here, friends. That's it. The only mission that we have as Christians is the mission that Jesus gave us. And when we radically live out of that mission, we are living proof to the world that Christianity is true. To live, to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. That isn't only reach church's mission. That's Jesus' mission. To reaching all people, the very mission of God. We find this in Scripture. What did the Father send the Son to do? What was his mission? Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus told us his mission to seek and save the lost is our mission. John 20.21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. There it is, to seek and save the lost. That is our mission, to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. And Jesus didn't leave us on our own. He gives us his very own Holy Spirit. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of Christ receiving this Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. That's what enabled Peter to preach the way he preached. As what I read earlier. The best proof of Christianity is a group of people, us, who are on fire for his mission. Nothing but Jesus. The problem with the church today is that we are off mission and Christianity in general. We are about anything but Jesus. We are here to seek and save the lost. And the greatest proof of Christianity is that the world sees that in us. Period. That's it. Our mission isn't to be culture warriors. Our mission isn't to tell the world 
everything that we're against. Our mission isn't to be champions for God. Our mission isn't to get caught up in whatever flavor of the week it is, whatever social issue of the week it is. Our mission isn't to fight for our preferences when we come to church, when it comes to the color of the carpet or the walls or music or drums or how loud it is or what programs. Our mission isn't to play identity politics and get caught up in racial issues. Our mission isn't to elect a certain candidate so that he'll put our guy on the Supreme Court on a temporary government. Our mission isn't to tell everyone how wrong they are, to tell everyone what we're against. Our mission is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our mission isn't built on people's approval, on a bull market, on a hot romance, on successful kids, on more money, but on Jesus' suffering to seek and save the lost. Our mission is to live to reach all people with nothing but Jesus. We're here to tell others how a wretch like me was once lost but now is found. That's how people will know it's true. We're here to be so enamored with Jesus that we love each other so well that the community is pressing their noses up against the windows to see what the heck is going on in here. That is how people will know it's all true. We are here to become conformed more and more and more, not to our favorite Christian leader, not to our favorite Christian football player, not to some politician, to none of that, but to be conformed to the very image of Christ. We are here to become more and more filled with the Holy Spirit. We are here to tell people of the hope that resides in us, that in Jesus, nothing will separate you from his love, that nothing will take you away from Jesus' hand, that nothing can write you out of his story, out of his book. We are here to proclaim to people that in Jesus, our past is forgiven, our present is in God's control, and our future is beyond all we could ever imagine. We're here to proclaim that Jesus didn't just make a token sacrifice for us, that Jesus paid it all, that there's no sacrifice we can make that will add or replace to that sacrifice of Christ. We're here to proclaim that there's no catch when it comes to Jesus. There's no qualification. Jesus' stories of extravagant grace include no catch, no loophole, no disqualifying us from God's love, each has at its core an ending that's too good to be true. We have one message. We don't have to fix it. We don't have to change it. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to get past it. Our one message and the way people will truly know is by being about nothing but Jesus. Amen? Let's do it, guys. Let's do it.